Welcome back to our study on the book of Revelation. We are nearing the end of this study, just a couple of chapters to go here. Uh, but we uh, find ourselves in probably one of the most controversial or the most talked about chapters in all of Scripture. Revelation chapter 20 is where we get a lot of these prophecies and ideas and interpretations that have been um, not just contentious, but really the foundation of some religious movements and some groups that have uh, divided themselves from, from, uh, from other Christians. Um, books have been written over the centuries, uh, books that would be far larger than the book of Revelation itself, really just about chapter 20 and just about what these, the, these scriptures are trying to tell us. And it's strange because um, we accept there's some figurative language in those first 19 chapters. We've talked a lot about that in this study. And then we get to chapter 20 and suddenly people want to take it literally. People want to look at this in a, in a, in a much more specific context as though these thousand years and these uh, armies and, and Satan and things are just super literal all of a sudden. Um, and groups have written, people have written about what this means and they have built faith on it, they have built religion on it, and they have policed it, that they've gotten it right and no one else has it right and their interpretation is the only one that pleases God. Uh, a degree of humility is required to study Revelation, and particularly Revelation chapter 20. So we're going to have that humility and say that we don't know everything there is to know about, about Scripture itself, and specifically this chapter. And what we do know is that the Bible is given to us in order to reveal Jesus Christ, and it's through him we're saved. And so we're going to try to find Jesus in chapter 20, and we're going to make that the, the purpose of what we do. And we're going to try to figure out what some of these things mean and put them in the context of the people who received it. Because that's what we've been after this whole time as we've studied Revelation. So let's not get tripped up and let's not get bogged down. And let's certainly not use Revelation chapter 20 as a tool to divide and do damage to God's people and his kingdom. Let's take it for what it is. Um, there are things that are difficult to understand in Scripture. But that's okay. We trust God. His grace is sufficient, and we look for Jesus in, in the text. <clears throat> so let's dig in. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and, the, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Um, first thing I want to point out is, before we get into the thousand years and the pits and the abysses and all that, um, an angel of the Lord just swoops down and picks up Satan and, and gets rid of him. I think sometimes, maybe it's our narrative tendencies uh, with how we look at God and Satan, in the way in which other civilizations have looked at gods and mythologies, that you have a good and an evil and they are equal in some way. Satan is not equal to God, not even close. He's not even equal to some of the angels of God. When he sends his mighty angels, they are, um, they are a force to be reckoned with, even by Satan himself. And so we see the power in that. I think that's, that's wonderful that it's an angel that comes down and takes care of this 
um, this dragon, this serpent, this devil, Satan. Now he's bound for a thousand years. Okay, now all of this time we have talked about a thousand years and we have understood that this is not a literal thousand years. There's no reason to think that it would literally be a thousand years now at this point in the text. Uh, we are still talking about figurative thousands, but a thousand was the biggest number they could conceive of. It was, they didn't have millions and billions and trillions. They had a thousand and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, only multiples of thousands because a thousand was the most there could be. So it is a large number, it is a long time. It is a finite amount of time, but it is a long time. So Satan is going to be bound. He is going to be put into a pit and, and be sealed up. Now, there, here's the, the beauty and the purpose of chapter 20. Because this letter, Revelation is essentially a letter uh, to Christians who were mostly Jews at this time, the end of the first century, but they were mingling with Gentiles and there were Gentile Christians, but they were still to this point the minority uh, in, in most parts of the world as far as Christians go. But this is a letter meant to say that times are hard, your life is hard, um, there is suffering, there's persecution, but God sees you and he sees what's happening. He's going to set it right. Um, there, is, there is a rescue coming. It's all building to this idea of a great battle and that God's going to win, God's going to triumph. Now, the people who receive these letters, some of the triumph that is predicted, they did not get to witness in their life. They died. Their lives ended on this earth. They did not witness the, the, the victory. Um, they did not witness a Christian uh, on the throne of Rome. They did not witness um, the, the comeuppance of Rome in its fall and the empire's destruction. They didn't get to see the payoff. We're getting to read about the payoff, but we have to remember the context. So Satan is going to be brought under control. Remember, their big battle has taken place and Rome has been destroyed, the, the evil... Uh, leader, the, the emperor has been destroyed, and the religious apparatus that supports him, all destroyed. And now Satan is going to be reined in. He's going to be held back. God has the power to limit Satan, to bind him, to hold him back. He does, which is what makes it so important in, the, in this life that when we think about the battle of good and evil, even in our own heart, um, we are not helpless because we have access to God who has dominion over Satan. <clears throat> so he's being bound. He's being bound for a long period of time. So there's going to be some peace. There's going to be a, a pulling back of the evil that is afflicting the world and afflicting God's people. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. We don't know who this is. It's the, the 24 elders and, and apostles and tribes that we saw early. We don't know. <clears throat> also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. So, what he's seeing here is um, a what we might call a cloud of witnesses, as we read in the book of Hebrews, but uh, um, these people on thrones who are going to be the judges. And then we see those who are martyred for the cause of Christ, those who have suffered, uh, those who have died, and those who did so faithfully. Um, this is beautiful imagery because this life is hard. 
none of us get out of this life without without sinning and without making mistakes, but we are made sinless because of Jesus Christ. And um, faith is not perfection. Faith is continuing to move forward in a belief and in a, 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 a love for Jesus and for one another. So verse, uh, sorry, the end of, uh, <clears throat> of the verse here, verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, we got to stop there because he sees these judges, he sees these martyrs, and they are resurrected and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. Don't get stuck on the thousand years. There are groups, uh, it's less debated now, but at one time it was heavily contentious uh, in our religious uh, faith faith heritage, the churches of Christ, about millennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism, the belief in the thousand-year reign and the literal nature of chapter 20, verse 4. Um, the point that we're missing, if we get stuck on a thousand years, there's going to be a thousand-year reign. The point we're missing, of course, a thousand years is just a long time. We get to reign with Christ. When we dwell with Christ, we reign with him. We are, uh, have the blessing of eternal life, a home with God, a dwelling place with Jesus, and a reign, uh, a, a reign over another life, another world, another place. Uh, don't miss that. Don't miss that we are brought up to be with him and to be in a relationship with him, uh, and we are put into a position with Christ. That's a, and what are we reigning over? We're reigning over death. We reign over sin because Jesus has defeated those things through the cross. We miss that when we jump right to the thousand years and try to tear that down and, and, and figure that out. Reigning with Christ is the point of verse 4. Those who were martyred and who suffered and who died, they're going to be resurrected and they are going to be rewarded. This is the meek inheriting the earth. Okay, That's the point. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, what's this first death, second death, first resurrection, second resurrection? Remember <clears throat> uh, Romans chapter 6 where baptism uh, is equated to a death. Jesus died, we died with him. And when we died, we died to sin. So we are dead and buried in baptism. We are resurrected, rising from the water to walk in newness of life. That's how baptism is described. So that act of baptism is the first death, the first resurrection. The second death is when we leave this life and the second resurrection is when we ascend to heaven as a saved people. Um, and so he, he's mentioning here, there are those who are blessed because they were partakers of this faith. They had, they had suffered the first death, they had been a part of this first resurrection, and they had this blessing. And there were others that, that came later, um, but, but it's, there's a special blessing for those who are in Christ. Um, there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of um, disagreement theologically on 
who is God going to save? And I think most of the religious world would say, the mainstream religious world, Christian world, would say those who believe in Jesus Christ, at the very minimum, those who call on the name of the Lord. Um, we go further, and there are those who believe that baptism is essential to that. We certainly teach that baptism is an essential component of, of salvation, that it is something that we are instructed in Scripture is a part of how we enter into Christ. So we teach that, and, and there are others who have various ideas of where that line is drawn. But there is a growing number of people, even within Christianity, that believe of, at some point, some way, God's going to just save everybody. This universalism is the name for it. I'm not, I don't know that I'm there, but I don't know that I would be mad if that was the case. Uh, there was a time where I might have been, uh, because if you feel like, well, we're called to live a certain way and do certain things, and that, that gets us into heaven, and uh, and if someone else gets let in, you know, they didn't follow the program, well, that kind of cheapens it for me. I'm realizing that's not the case. Uh, if I get to heaven and I'm surprised by who's there, there are other people who, by my definition, weren't making it in, but they're in, I don't think I'm going to be angry. I think I'm going to be relieved because if they're in, then I know I'm getting in. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of like... You know, someone said, if you if you get to heaven and you see Hitler, would you be mad? Um, I'll be relieved. <laughs> if he's in, pretty sure I can clear that bar. Um, but I, I'm not there. I, theologically, I don't know that I accept that idea. However, um, that would be wonderful. I would be fine with it. Because I think the power of God and the power of the blood of Jesus, if there's anything in this this world that can do it, that's what can do it. Um, but I don't know. All I know is that the Bible teaches those in Christ will be saved. Those who believe, call on the name of the Lord, uh, will be saved. Um, those who believe and are baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. I'm just going to follow what the Bible reveals. If God has other plans, I'll be all right with it. But, um, but I, 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 the, the point of that is, well, what is the advantage? That would be the question, right? The logical question if we said, hey, everybody goes to heaven in the end. Everybody's saved. Um, if that were the case, then, um, you know, is there something, have we wasted our time being Christians? Have we wasted our time being faithful if God's just going to save everybody? No, absolutely not. <clears throat> For the same reason that the older brother in the story of the prodigal son had no reason to complain, and his father told him so. Yes, the prodigal son did not deserve to be welcomed back into the home. Yes, the prodigal son had been foolish, sinful, and squandered wealth. Uh, yes, uh, it does seem unjust that the son who was faithful uh, never had a party thrown for him, and yet there's rejoicing over the idiot brother that comes home. I understand the frustration of the older brother. And I think there are other people that look at me and understand the frustration of the older brother. We're all in both of those roles. And there's allegory in there about the Jews and the Gentiles and all of that. But, but, what the father says to the older son is, yeah, I, I never threw you a party because you've always been here. And the blessings you've received from being in my household are more than enough to justify celebrating your brother's return. 
when we read about resurrections and the saved and the martyrs and everybody else, questions will arise about who's going to be in what group, who is going to be saved. And it could be, because there are people in Christianity that look at it, that it could be a very, some define it as a very, very narrow, very finite group. Um, some very broadly, the universalist. I'm probably somewhere in the middle, personally. Uh, that's what I believe scripture teaches. But here's the thing. If I get to heaven and everybody's there, everybody, then I'm going to rejoice that I have served a God who has such love and such power that he can do that. And I will never once feel that my faith was a waste of time or is cheapened because I got to live in the household of the Lord in this life and I'm blessed for it. I'm going to teach what the Bible teaches and I'm going to love others uh, and love the Lord and I'm going to let him sort out what happens when we all get there. And whatever he decides, I'll be okay with because I'm betting there will be a lot of people who think they're getting in that don't and there will be a lot of people who we don't think are getting in that do. We have no way of knowing, okay? Love God, love one another, and try to teach what, what the Bible teaches to the best of our ability. But if the broadest definition of salvation were true, not a single day of my faith has been wasted because of the blessings I've received. And that's how we should look at it. All right, verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Mm and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. All right, at some point, Satan's going to rear his head again. At some point, he's going to come forth, and he's going to bring more trouble, more armies, more destruction. A lot of energy has been put into figuring out who Gog and Magog are. Um, Genghis Khan, um... There's, there's a lot of different, I mean, there's, you know, plenty of armies to choose from and conquering forces in the history of the world. Here's the thing. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Um, but what we do know is Gog and Magog are found one other place in Scripture, and that is in the book of Ezekiel. And you want to talk about a hard book. Ezekiel's a hard book. Revelation and Ezekiel are right up there in the most difficult uh, scriptures to understand and to study. But that's where we find Gog and Magog, is in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is talking about this army, this, this evil army that's going to be raised up by Satan to sweep across the earth and bring destruction. Okay, The people who were reading this understood what it meant. Almost any Jew and many Gentiles would have understood the reference here. It may not be a specific nation, a specific army. It could be the concept that at some point Satan will be loosed upon the earth again. He will rear his head and he will encourage evil among nations and they will sweep across the world and they will bring destruction and they will bring suffering. It's going to happen again. This is history. And so verse 9, they marched up, but, but see, let me stop. Here's what happens though. This is what we got to remember. Oh my goodness, we're going to get some peace and then we're going to have some tribulation. We're going to have some peace again and we're going to have some trouble and some suffering. But watch what happens. And this is what has happened and what the, the, the revelator says is going to continue to happen. 
Verse 9. <clears throat> and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right. Now, this is some scary language, but boy, is it beautiful. Satan is going gonna, is gonna to be held down for a little while, and then he's going to come back. And he's going to work through the earth, and he's going to bring armies of destruction and suffering. But God is faithful, and God will win every time. And he is going to rescue his people, and he is going to cast down the evildoers into the fire. And you see the, the beast is already down there. The false prophet's already down there. Remember them, the two beasts? Uh, and Satan's going to be thrown back again, and all those who do evil with him. God's going to continually be, be a, a justifying force and a peace-bringing force upon our life, upon the life of his people in this life. Um, there is punishment. There is a comeuppance. There is a destruction for the evildoer. And there is a salvation and a protection for the godly. Um, we may not always see the fruition of that. But this is the cycle of history. We can verify that. We can look back and see the cycles of history of war and hunger and struggle and peace and prosperity and development. Um, but they're thrown out. They're thrown into the lake of fire. There's the, the ash heap of history, we might call it. Um, the pile of destruction that they'll be added to. And then they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, this is a bit of a, a difficult thing to think about because forever and ever um, what we think of that is indefinite forever and ever unending and this is where we get the idea of unending punishment or never-ending hell everlasting hell there there are those who believe that's the case that the evildoer the sinner this the one separated from God will be cast into <clears throat> into hell into this place and will be kept alive there for all eternity to be tortured in fire um, I, I don't know that I personally believe that's the case. Uh, I, don't, I don't really, on a personal note, like what that says about God, and I think that that's a challenging thing to reconcile. However, um, there's a lot of history and tradition behind why we see it that way. It is important to know, and you can, um, there's wonderful things that have been written about this idea. Um, uh, Brother Edward Fudge is one that comes to mind who wrote um, a book called The Fire That Consumes. I highly encourage you to read that. He did some very scholarly work in examining the scriptures, examining extra-biblical sources, and studying the history of this concept that hell is eternal. One of the reasons we get there is some Greek philosophy kind of meandered its way into, into the early days of the church. But also, we read words like forever and ever, and we think of it the way we define forever and ever. As 21st century Western Americans, forever and ever means for eternity, but in the Jewish vernacular, forever just meant until it isn't anymore, until something changes. It was, it was indefinite, not in its permanence, but indefinite in the lack of the knowledge of when it would end. Now, I'm not I don't want to start any kind of debates or arguments about hell uh, or if it's eternal. I don't know. I have some inclinations, uh, and others do as well. 
to think that I have it right completely would be would be wrong. To think that you have it right completely would probably be wrong. Uh, and to let that divide us would absolutely be wrong. So, in the same manner that we approach the book of Revelation, we approach all these other concepts with humility, understanding that, um, that Jesus is present in this. We're going to look for Jesus. The point is, there's punishment for the evildoer. God wins. God will win. Period. <clears throat> Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who is seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the second death, the lake, oh, excuse me, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a scene of judgment. This is a scene of um, the good and bad and standing before God and giving an answer. And it says, we'll be judged for what we have done. I probably used to think that when we get to heaven, we're going to all be lined up. And we'll get called to the front. And we'll stand there before God, and they'll play scenes from our life, all the bad things we've done, and they'll present our scorecard of good and bad, and if we do more good than bad, then we get in. I think that's how we conceptualize heaven a lot. Here's the important thing to remember when it talks about being judged by what you've done. <clears throat> um, we believe that we are saved by faith. The Bible teaches that very clearly. God's grace and our faith in Jesus Christ is what saves us. So does that mean that what we do is not important? Absolutely not. What we do is a reflection of that faith. So it is very important that we live righteous lives and faithful lives to God. 100% on board with that. But uh, we have to remember that as believers, as Christians, right now, this moment, in, as far as God is concerned in our relationship with him, if we have Jesus Christ in our life, if we're clothed in his righteousness, we're going to be judged by his righteousness, which means we are sinless. We are without blemish before God because Jesus Christ covers our sin. And so, yeah, when we stand there and give an account, when they show that movie of our life, there's not going to be any sin in it because it's been erased. That part of the tape got erased, recorded over. For those of you who are older than 30, you'll know what that means. Recorded over by Jesus. So don't get hung up when this says we judge by what we've done. Wait a minute, we believe in justification by faith. You know, we just we just studied that in the in the Hebrews lessons in chapter 11. Yeah. We are justified by our faith. We're declared righteous by our faith. Our actions are a reflection of our faith. But those in Christ will be sinless on the account of Christ. And so when we're called before the throne, judge for what we've done, through the lens of Christ. One more chapter to go in Revelation. Can't wait to do it, and we hope you'll join us for that one next time. Thanks so much. We'll see you then.